0: And please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. So today we're looking at the, the end of Ephesians 1 verse 13. We looked at the first three quarters of it last week, looking at the end of verse 13, all of verse 14, which means that we are concluding our study of this magnificent opening section of Ephesians 1 today. And so uh, let's, just, let's not rush through this. So consider with me all that we've learned. All that we've learned that is true for all Christians, all that we've learned is true for all Christians this fall, over the last two and a half months together, just going through this first part of Ephesians 1. Think about some of the highlights that in Christ we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That God the Father chose us for salvation before the foundation of the world. That in love, God predestined us for adoption to himself through Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, we have redemption and the forgiveness of our trespasses through his blood. That we have both an inheritance in Christ and we have been made God's own possession in Christ. And today we'll learn about the assurance and the guarantee that God will bring all of his people all of the way home. So thus far in our study of Ephesians, we've learned an awful lot about how God the Father authored our salvation and chose us before the foundation of the world, how Jesus the Son has accomplished our salvation and redeemed us through his life, death, and resurrection. And today we'll learn about how the Holy Spirit applies our salvation and assures us of our inheritance in Christ. And so hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, life-giving word As I read one more time, this last time, as we move our way through Ephesians, through this long sentence in the original Greek text, from verse 3 all the way to verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to look at the end of verse 13 and all of verse 14 under two headings, two words. Sealed and guaranteed. Sealed and guaranteed. So first, sealed, look with me at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we spent all of last Sunday's sermon focused on the first three quarters of of this verse, trying to understand what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. You may remember we talked about how that word translated gospel means good tidings or good news, so The gospel is good news. It's not merely good advice. The gospel is not good advice about what we need to do, should do, or even can do to earn our salvation, and that's because there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do, as Paul writes in Romans three twenty three: "For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God." So the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. It's the the declaration, the announcement, the proclamation of the good news of what Jesus has done, of what Jesus has accomplished for the salvation of his people through his life, death, and resurrection. Put another way, Christians are saved by Jesus' accomplished work of redemption, A a redemption applied by the Holy Spirit, a redemption received through faith. And our text today begins with that final phrase of verse 13. So look again at Ephesians 1, verse 13. Believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So once you trust in Jesus and are saved by him through faith, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) You're completely pardoned. You're credited with Jesus' righteousness. You're adopted into God's family. That You belong to God. Therefore, God marks you with a seal. And do you see what that seal is? Or rather, do you see who this seal is in the final phrase of verse 13? Believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. See, when a Christian hears the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and believes... Okay, in that very moment, in that very moment, not, not at some later second blessing, not at some later time is there some later spiritual add-on for, for, for the upper-level Christians, for the elite Christians, but in that very moment, you believe the gospel, and once for all time, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Amen is right. It's glorious good news. But what does it mean to be sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? Well, 2,000 years ago in the ancient world in which Paul lived, a, a prominent person would often choose a symbol or an emblem as his or her official seal, or they would inherit it from their family, passed down to them as this official seal. And it was common to affix the imprint of one's seal, often using a signet ring and melted wax, onto an object or a document. And the seal on the object or on the document would mark it as belonging to that person or coming from that person. So scholars and commentators seem to agree that there were at least four purposes for such a seal in the ancient world. And I think all of these help us understand what Paul's saying to us in Ephesians 1 verse 13. So these purposes are, first, a seal was used to authenticate. To authenticate and confirm something particular as being genuine and real to authenticate it, to confirm it as being genuine and real. You know, think about it like the official seal on your passport. The, that, the pass, your passport, that's, that, that's a strong document that authenticates who you are and where you're from. My, my, this past week, my, my oldest daughter, Lillian, received her learner's permit. So I tell you that for a number of reasons, one, to be, to be, one, to be warned, uh, but num- number two, to invite prayer, prayer for me as I attempt to teach her, but more so prayer for her as she tries to learn from me. But I tell you this not only to, to, as a warning not only for prayer, but because whenever you take your teenager to get their learner's permit, you can either bring their social security card and just their passport, or you have to bring an incredibly long list of other documents to try to authenticate they are who they are. That they really are your child, they really are, um, you know, from live in the state of Texas and so forth. See, th- that official seal, th- that's all you need. If you have the passport with the official seal, that's all you need. See, first a seal was used to authenticate and to confirm something particular as being genuine and true. In a similar way, having the seal, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit authenticates and confirms those who profess to be Christians as indeed genuine followers of Christ. Second, a seal was used to mark something as the property of another. You know, we see this today. Ranchers still brand their cattle, you know, with that seal, with that brand, to mark those cattle belonging to them. Keith Warrington puts it this way, the fact that a believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit indicates that the one who arranged for the sealing, namely Christ, owns him, owns her. Third, a seal was used to make something secure. You may remember that the Pharisees and the religious leaders really insisted that the Romans apply a seal to to Jesus' tomb to, to, to make it to make it secure so that his body would not be taken away. Sinclair Ferguson says there is both the security of forgiveness and the assurance of belonging to God given to us in Christ and realized in us by his gift of the Holy Spirit. That's security. John Calvin adds besides our receiving of faith at the hand of the Holy Spirit and besides his enlightening us of us by his grace, God also secures us in such a way that we do not fall away. Then fourth, a seal was used to signify a completed business transaction. And we know this right even from our use of the phrase, you know, seal the deal. Right? When the deal has been sealed, then that means it's done. The deal has been made, it's been struck, the transaction has happened, the purchase has been made. It's final. You know, that the property has exchanged hands. So Richard Phillips summarizes this by saying, The presence of the Spirit shows that redemption has been accomplished and the believer's salvation cannot now be stopped. Through the Spirit, then, believers are authenticated. We are marked as belonging to Christ. We are secured and protected from things that might separate us from God, and our redemption is completed, the ransom price having been paid and accepted by God so look again at Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit. See, when a, Christian, when a Christian hears the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation and believes, in that very moment, not at some later time, but in that very moment, and once for all time, they are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So that's sealed. Now, our second heading is guaranteed. And so look at the end of 13 and beginning of 14. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul says in verse 14 that the Holy Spirit himself is the guarantee of our inheritance. That he, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so let's think about that word translated guarantee. Here's, here's what John Stott says about it and its definition. In, in ancient commercial transactions, the Greek word translated guarantee signified a first installment, deposit, down payment, pledge that pays a part of the purchase price in advance and so secures a legal claim to the article in question or makes a contract valid. In this case, the guarantee is not something separate from what it guarantees, but actually the first portion of it. A deposit on a house is itself the first installment of the purchase price. So it is with the Holy Spirit. In giving him to us, God is not just promising us our final inheritance, but actually giving us a foretaste of it. Actually, giving us a foretaste of it. Look again at verse 13 and verse 14. We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So, so do you see that Paul is not really telling you about something that awaits you off in the distance, that awaits you at some time in the future? Paul is telling you that the indwelling Holy Spirit in your life today, in your life today, because Jesus has saved you, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in your life today is a foretaste of the full inheritance that awaits you in Christ. Now think for a moment about that foretaste and how it must compare to the full inheritance how the full inheritance must be so much greater, so much sweeter. And so, dear brother, dear sister in Christ, these verses are meant to be a stunning encouragement to you, to you here today, to lift your gaze above your present circumstances, no matter how difficult or how hard or how scary they are, and to think about all you have in Christ. Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, imagine the sublimest, most treasured experiences of the Holy Spirit we have ever had and then realize they are only a foretaste, the tip of the tongue on the spoon of what is to come. Remember the release and coming to Christ and knowing you were forgiven. Do you remember that? Remember that, that time when in worship you were smitten with awe. Remember the time you followed the Spirit's leading and were wonderfully used. Remember the satisfaction of finding the fruit of the Spirit, surprising you with goodness where you once responded wickedly. Think of all this and then multiply it a million fold. Here on earth, we have experienced the first dollar of a million heavenly dollars. The earnest. Now it's possible that that someone could say, well, Richard, all of this sounds wonderful. In fact, Richard, it it maybe even sounds too good to be true. It sounds almost too good to be true. And so how do I know this is true for me? How how do I know that that I have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in me? How can I know that I've been sealed with the, the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of my inheritance? I'm glad you asked. These are wonderful questions to ask. Wonderful questions to ask because we can confuse, we can confuse momentary external excitement and emotion in a church service, at a conference, at a retreat, at any ministry event. We can confuse momentary external excitement where we, we raise our hand, we walk an aisle, we repeat a prayer after a prayer coach of some sort. We can confuse that with genuine, true, internal objective, heart-level, Holy Spirit change within us. So, so how do we avoid confusing mere momentary external excitement and emotion with genuine, objective, internal Holy Spirit-wrought salvation? That's a good question. In the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards wrote a book about this. The book's titled, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. And in the book, Edwards lists five indicators that a person has been truly sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It is five true signs of the Holy Spirit's work and presence in a Christian's life. And so I'm, I'm gonna give you a summary of a summary, okay? First, the elevation of esteem in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior. The, the, the first sign of the Holy Spirit working in a person's life is that they're making much of Jesus. That they're thinking so much more about Jesus than they are about the Holy Spirit, that they are magnifying and glorifying Jesus. They've got an elevated esteem in Jesus because that's the work of the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's job description. That's what Jesus told us about the Holy Spirit back in John. You remember that? In John 15, 26, Jesus says, but when the Helper comes... John 15, 26, but when the Helper comes, the Helper being the Holy Spirit, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That the Holy Spirit bears witness to us about Christ. Then in in John 16, 13, and 14, Jesus says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He will glorify me. He will bear witness about me. Whereas J.I. Packer put it, the Holy Spirit's role is to, to serve as, as the floodlight or, or the spotlight shining brightly on Jesus. Therefore, a true work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life will glorify, magnify, exalt Jesus, and lead that person to a greater love for Jesus. So, so, do you love Jesus? Are, Are you growing in your love for Jesus? Second, a true work of the Holy Spirit opposes the reign of Satan and causes us to turn from sin. Now, I'm not talking about perfectionism, okay? I'm not talking about legalism. Please don't accuse me of that. I'm not talking about, I am not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about perfectionism. That that you and I, we will continue to struggle and battle against sin for the rest of our life here on this earth. That's That's why each and every Lord's Day in our worship service, we have a time of confession of sin, and we have a time where we are assured of God's pardon and comfort that we're assured that God's grace in Christ is greater than our sin. We we will battle against sin as long as we live on this earth, but the question is whether we are truly battling against our sin or not. Right, a sign of of the Holy Spirit's work within us is that we are trying to put our sin to death. Are Are you trying to kill your sin? Or maybe let me ask the question at, at a more street level. Are you even bothered by your sin? We feel conviction over it. See, because if the Spirit's at work within us, then we, we experience that ongoing work of God's grace in our lives called Sanctification. The Shorter Catechism, question 35, defines sanctification this way. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It's an ongoing work of God's free grace in our lives, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled by the Holy Spirit. We are enabled by the Holy Spirit more and more to die unto sin and more and more to live unto righteousness. You see, merely trying hard to be a nice person with good manners is not necessarily evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in a person's life. Although I recommend being nice, and I think it's great to have good manners. But a genuine desire to put one's sin to death and to obey all that God commands in the Bible is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in a person's life. Third, a true work of the Holy Spirit brings an increase of interest in God's Word. I mean, do you love the Word of God? Or do you desire to love the Word of God more? You know, do you desire to read it? Or do you even desire to desire to read it? Do you desire to read God's Word, to study it, to discuss it, to, to hear it preached, and to obey it? Fourth, a true work of the Holy Spirit brings a desire to understand sound doctrine and even defend true doctrine against error. See, and this is not just true for for pastors, it's not just true for elders, although it certainly is, but this is true for every individual Christian. I mean, is your love for Christ growing? Is your hatred of your sin growing? Is your love of God's word growing? And, and, And do you desire more and more to, to know and to understand sound doctrine, and, and to defend sound doctrine against error. I mean, children, do you feel that way? Whenever you hear classmates say things that you know are wrong, is do you feel that burning desire to say, "You know what? That, that's not right. That's not what the Bible says." Parents, are we tell, are we teaching that to our children? Yes, I, I, I know that that family said that, but that, that's not what the Bible says. That's not true doctrine. That's not sound doctrine. Fifth, Edward says a true work of the Holy Spirit is marked by love of God and love of others. Edward says if the Spirit that is at work among a people operates as a spirit of love to God and man, it is a sure sign that it is the Spirit of God. So it's and, it's both love of God and love of others. It's both, right? What do the scriptures principally teach? What we are to believe about God and what duty God requires of man. It's both love of God, love of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it's loving others. It's loving our neighbors as ourselves. And and we cannot be a church that picks one over the other. We cannot be a church that just picks love of God and not love of others, and we can't be a church that just focuses on loving others and serving the city and and doing nice things without loving God, the true God of the Bible. We must be a church that loves God and loves others. So, do you love Jesus? Are you battling against your sin? Are you fighting to put it to death? Do you love God's word? Do you desire to read it, to study it, to discuss it, to to hear it preached faithfully, to obey it? Is the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in your heart to grow your love for God and your love for those people around you? See, I I know that this this sermon took a turn about 10 minutes ago because it was all so wonderful. We're hearing about sealed and guaranteed and, and now there's this invitation to examine. Well, Paul says that's not a bad thing. 2 Corinthians 13 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And so the the goal with this this list from Edward's book is not to scare anyone, but but I I don't want anyone to have a false assurance of salvation that they don't really possess. And so if you don't know Christ, if you've got no idea of what I'm talking about with this this evidence and this fruit, this this sign of the work of the Spirit in your life, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin, turn from your attempts at self-righteousness and trust in Jesus. Trust in, in his completed work for you, his perfect sinless life, his atoning death. His resurrection from the grave. Trust in Christ. He'll save you. He'll give you his Holy Spirit. You'll be born again. He'll give you a new heart. There'll be resurrection power within you that that enables you to walk in newness of life. Trust in Christ. But now I also know that that, that in a room this size, I know many of you already, I know many of you are, your, your consciences are tender. And, and you are burdened by your sin. And you can hear a list like this from Edwards and you can think, oh, I don't know if that's me. I, I feel now, now, I'm, now I'm questioning everything because I know how great my sin is. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 are meant to be words of comfort and assurance. And so listen to them again. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, We're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. If you look at these two verses, they're meant to be a source of great assurance, security, and comfort for you, dear Christian. And these two verses are meant to lead you to doxology. You see how they end? To the praise of his glory. Or Sinclair Ferguson puts it, the Holy Spirit's presence in our life is itself God's assurance that every spiritual blessing will be ours. More than that, this down payment is a first installment of the final consummation of the blessings we will experience in the resurrection. Now, this talk of the blessings we will experience in the resurrection This talk of of being sealed for this inheritance in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it reminds me of a verse we looked at weeks ago, earlier in Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, verse 3, where we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it's in Christ. and I don't want us to miss that in Christ part. See, we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. However, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that Christ himself is our inheritance. That we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That we have obtained an inheritance in Christ. Because Christ is our inheritance. Christ is the prize. Both now and for all eternity. And so listen to how Pastor Ian Hamilton summarizes this. We need to understand, however, that our blood-bought inheritance is not at heart a collection of blessings. Even the glorious blessings so wonderfully described throughout Ephesians 1, our inheritance is in Christ. Because he is our inheritance. We must never attempt to separate Christ from his blessings and benefits. God in Christ is the believer's inheritance this is the incalculable and unfathomable inheritance that God gives to us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, in look back at verses 13 and 14. It begins with, in him. In Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. As you look at those verses, as I said a few minutes ago, these verses are meant to be a, a, a great source, a great, an incredible source of, of assurance, of security, of comfort for you, dear Christian. They're intended to lead you to doxology. Look at how they end, to the praise of his glory. So why, why is it to the praise of his glory? Why is it to the praise of God's glory? Because our triune God is the one who has done all of this. That God the Father authored our salvation. God the Son accomplished our salvation. God the Holy Spirit applies, assures, seals, guarantees our salvation. In fact, the refrain, to the praise of his glory, or to the praise of his glorious grace, it's a refrain throughout Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. See, it shows up in verse 6, to the praise of God the Father's work. And then it shows up at the end of verse 12 to the praise of God the Son's redeeming work. And it shows up again here at the end of verse 14 to the praise of the Holy Spirit's sealing and guaranteeing and marking, applying work. As Donald Gray Barnhouse put it, we are not only saved, we are also safe. Christ paid the price of our sins and the Holy Spirit maintains us in our sure position as children of God, meaning, meaning, dear Christian, that what you read in the final chapter of the Bible really does await you. (laughs) Revelation 21 and 22, Revelation 22 really does tell of our inheritance, of your inheritance. Look at what we read, Revelation 22, 3 to 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no, lamp, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Richard Phillips summarizes this. He says, these things are sure. They're not just a dim possibility if the will is found in our favor. No, the documents are all signed and sealed. They have been made public and are held in trust until the day of their execution when the exalted Lord Jesus will step forward to open the seals and bring all things to consummation. We are heirs with our fortune held securely. You are an heir with your fortune held securely. And so Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, this language of, of sealed and guaranteed in this talk of of documents it reminds me of of a john bunyan's classic uh, pilgrim's progress and i i trust that many of you have read it if you haven't read it uh, go go read it okay that's your assignment okay between now that's your new year's resolution number one okay read read pilgrim's progress parents read it with your children okay they'll, they'll love it i promise you and in pilgrim's progress read about the journey of the main character named christian from when he decides to leave his hometown uh, to follow Jesus to the celestial city of the great king. And the story is an allegory for the whole Christian life. And early in the story, Christian is carrying around a, a great burden on his back until he comes to the place of deliverance, the hill where there is the cross. And there at the cross, Jesus saves Christian. And we're told in the book, the king of the celestial city had removed the weight of sin from his shoulders at the place of deliverance. Just then, three shining ones came to him. The first one said, your sins are forgiven. The second one removed the rags he was wearing and put beautiful clothes on him. Then the third shining one set a mark on his forehead and gave him a rolled up paper document with a seal on it. And then we read, take care of this document and read it for comfort as you go on your way. The third shining one told Christian, you'll be asked to turn it in at the gate of the celestial city. And after many difficulties and dangers and even failures, Christian arrived at the celestial city with a companion named Hopeful. And then Christian and Hopeful turned in their documents, which were brought to the king. And when the king read them, he told his servants to open the gates and let them in. And we read, The gates were opened and the bells of the city rang out with joy. So Christian and Hopeful were brought before the king who was sitting on his throne, waiting to receive them. Then they, along with all God's people and the angels in heaven, began singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. See, friends, God will bring all of his people all of the way home. And this is what Paul is assuring us of in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity and the, the challenge and the conviction and the comfort we find in your word. Lord, I pray that, that, every, that only those who need to be challenged and convicted would be by this sermon. And I pray, Father, that, that those who need to be comforted, those who need to leave here with, with a stronger sense of your love for them in Jesus Christ, the assurance of their salvation, I pray they would leave with just that. Lord, thank you for your word. Write these truths upon our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.